You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermons online at mulvanechurch.com sermons. Today we have our Back to Basics lesson. It is the fifth one. And today we're going to be talking about a faithful and a holy life. Now, as these have progressed, you might recall back on the first day of the year, uh, on the first uh, Sunday in January, uh, we talked about Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And we talked about Him who was our, uh, our Messiah, the one who is now the Lord of all because He is the Savior of all, the one who is Jesus of Nazareth. Then we moved on from there to talk about our response to that, that uh, we needed to believe that, that there was a saving faith, uh, which was accompanied by various things, such as uh, repentance, baptism, obviously, and then a faithful life to follow. And that's really where we are today in the faithful life to follow. But before we got to here, we had a couple of other things, logically and of necessity to cover, uh, of a priority. Now that we're no longer in sin and in the world, but we're going to be dedicated and faithful followers of, of Jesus Christ. How do we live? Well, we took at the two great commandments, putting God first above all things, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. And then last time we did one of these, we had the sermon entitled, Added to Their Number, which is taken from a text in the latter part of Acts chapter 2, where we saw those who uh, had this same faithful relationship uh, and uh, saved relationship uh, with Christ, uh, they were together. There was a fellowship of believers. And uh, Acts 2.46, they were day by day, continuing in one mind. There's the fellowship in the temple. What were they doing? Breaking bread from house to house. They were having the meals together, it says, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. It doesn't say having favor with God. It says having favor with the people. There's another passage that has that exact same turn of phrase about Jesus in his youth as he grew, Acts 2.42. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Well, here the favor with God is clearly implied and shown in the fact that miracles were taking place. They were directly under the guidance of Jesus' hand-picked apostles. And so we saw the brethren together continuing to learn uh, and to uh, put that faith into practice. It would do precious little good to believe in Jesus at some point and then later not. To uh, uh, follow the commands and teachings, uh, the example and the uh, instructions of Jesus Christ, and then after a bit say, okay, I've I've done that, what else is there, what's the next thing? No, this is something they did for a long time, for a lifetime, The rest of the New Testament is uh, epistles to the churches primarily. There's a few epistles to individual believers. Uh, There's a couple to uh, Timothy and Titus instructions about how they as ministers of the gospel would conduct themselves among the brethren uh, who were believers. But primarily the rest of the uh, New Testament is 50 to 75 years of instructions of how to live faithfully in Christ and have this holy life. There is a, uh, one particular passage on this topic that always strikes me the most, and one that's always the foremost of my mind regarding it, is Hebrews 12 and 14. Hebrews 12 and 14 says this, Pursue peace with all men 
and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now that's a great encouragement and a great instruction. That also has a pretty good barb in it, doesn't it? Without which no one will see the Lord. Now we do understand that anytime there's a moral instruction, anytime there's an instruction of the scripture, it always has with it a bit of a barb. Even if it's slight, even if not everybody recognizes it all the time, but every time we're told to do anything, our conscience does a quick little check and goes, did you do that or did you not? And depending on how we did or didn't do that instruction, that barb may be uh, just something that uh, uh, goes by. Yes, fine, I, I passed that test. I, my conscience says that, I am doing. Or depending upon the depth of my transgression that I recognize, the depth of my aberration of that uh, instruction, of my depth of omitting it from my life or committing it when I shouldn't have, that barb may set like the biggest hook ever dropped to get a fish. And you know how hard those things are to get out when they get properly set. And so there's in every instruction of, of moral obligation, there's always a barb there that might set, which is one reason why people sometimes get angry when the gospel is presented and why we get uncomfortable when people bring the truth to us. And we should recognize that and, and we should know maybe that's why they're responding. It wasn't that we didn't say it properly, uh, but, but uh, uh, you know, once the hook is set, you don't need to set it more. Uh, and so maybe that, that would be a, a thing to consider. But in this case, the barb is put right out there front and center. And sometimes the barb is put right front and center. It is set uh, intentionally by the text and explicitly. It wasn't just the conscience double-checking to see if that, uh, uh, should we, is that latched onto us or not. In this case, though, the barb is right out there in front. And it says there again, verse 14 of Hebrews 12, Pursue, that's our, that's our imperative verb there, pursue. And there's two things in which we're to pursue. One is peace with all men. Well, we just saw in Acts 2, what were those believers doing? They were having favor with the people. Why? Because they were living well. They were living right. They were living moral. They were not doing offensive things. If anyone took offense at Jesus, why well, then that was them. But uh, uh, on them, that wasn't on these people. They were pursuing peace with all men. But also, in that, the second part, in the word pursue there, that imperative, that imperative action, is also pursuing sanctification. Sanctification is something we are to pursue. It is to be one of our grand endeavors in life as a believer. And it says, without that, without which, no one will see the Lord. Well, there's the rub. There's the barb. Uh, there's the thing that might set into us and get a hold of us and should be there. That is a stern warning about a holy life. Now, luckily, as we'll see, not by accident, by the grand provision and grace of God, adequate provision is certainly made for us to have a sanctified life to live in and pursue. And we'll see that as we go. So today, our faithful and our holy life. Just one real quick thing. That passage says sanctification. I keep saying the word holiness. This is part of our double vocabulary in English. We have two words that mean exactly the same thing. Just like shepherd and pastor mean exactly the same thing. Uh, just like uh, a pig and pork literally mean the same thing. 
right? Well, I guess one's on the hoof and one's on the plate. But we got this double vocabulary. We can blame the French. Go back to 1066, blame William the Conqueror. He could barely speak French himself, but he still brought it to England. In any case, we have this double vocabulary of sanctified and holy. The word holy appears in our Bible in some form or another about 650 times, over 580 verses. Uh, holiness appears another 20 times. So we got 670-ish uh, times of holy. We've got another 100 times of sanctified, sanctify, or saint which means holy people or holy thing or a thing made holy. Then you add in the word sanctuary, which quite literally means holy place, add another 200. Some form of the word holy or sanctified is one of the most common significant words in the Bible. It's in the top five list. I mean, you take out the us and the these and the, and, uh, you know, the prepositions. You take out those pointer words the, uh, of the significant vocabulary words uh, in the scripture uh, the word holy in some form or another, either holy or sanctified, is it's right behind in the word count the, the name Jesus. It's right there. Uh, of course, our most significant words are, of course, uh, Lord and God. That would be the highest on the word count. But some type of holy will be right there with it. All right, so a faithful and holy life. Now, in one sense, these are the same thing. They are two descriptions of the same thing. In reality, describing two sides of the same coin. Holiness and faithfulness for the Christian are really of a piece. You, you can't have one without the other. It'd be like having uh, the head of the quarter uh, or uh, you know, the, the tail of the quarter. Which would you prefer? Right? Someone says, hey, uh, Jay, do you have change for a quarter? They don't ask me that much. When, when I was a teenager, we always would ask him for change and needn't needing bills. Now we don't use bills, and if we, well, and if we are going to use actual cash, we better have folding stuff because the coins don't amount to a lot. But back when I was a kid, the coins still mattered some, and people would have coins and exchange coins, and sometimes they would need the, the, to get change for the quarter. And did we ever offer them when they ask us change for the quarter, well, would you like the front side or the back? Well, that's not how we divide. How do we, we, we get the smaller coins out that add up to it, but we don't divide, we don't divide a single coin. There's a, a front side and a back side, and which one's more important? I suppose maybe the head side has the most significant detail uh, that's included, but, but every coin I've ever seen from any country I've ever been to and every piece of printed money, the front of it has something significant, and what does the back have? Something also very significant. Now, maybe it's of slightly lesser significant. So I, in this case, if this is to just press this analogy to the absolute death of it. <laughs> but if, this, if holy and faithful life are two sides of the same coin, which is the head and which is the tail? I don't know which is which. I honestly don't know which is which in this case. Uh, I'm not sure. They both have something in there very significant. They're both in there entirely connected. They are of a piece. But they are different things, uh, slightly, uh, although they are so intimately connected. Uh, let's take this in four parts, two on each. Two about the faith. We'll just put it all up there. You can keep scores to know how close you are to the end by looking. Uh, we'll note that the, the bottom has more verse references than the top. Every one of these verse references just about to be very familiar to you. We'll spend a little more time at the back end of this than the front end. Uh, but uh, uh, that's, on, that's by design. So let's get to the 
to the beginning here. The, we began our life in Christ in grace through faith. Any study of faithfulness and any study of holiness must always be rooted properly in what we once were and maybe often were and how we did not get to this life of faithfulness or holiness in any way of man's design, of, of, of great effort by man. Somebody didn't go scale the mountain and then show us the way to go. It was all laid out before us as a gift by the one who did undergo uh, the necessary price for our salvation. And it was the whole path was just laid out for us, not that it would be an easy path, but it was a clear path granted to us. We begin with the fact that our separation, because of sin from God, it was stark, and it was ugly, and it was complete. That's where we start this, right? Uh, if we're playing, uh, for instance, if, if we would compare again to just kill an analogy and drive to death. If we compare our life to chutes and ladders, where we're ascending and we're descending and we're going, but in the chutes and ladders, where do we start? Well, we all start down here at zero. But in our Christian life, we didn't start there. We started in that um, container of dirty motor oil where we soaked all the pieces before we started the game. Right? Y'all, that's how y'all played home, right? Chutes and ladders. You soak all the pieces in dirty oil and then you put them at the start and go. But isn't our Christian life about like that? Where did we start? We just soaked in the sludge of sin. Unable to get out of that. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Ephesians 2.1 In which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. And that gulf was not bridged by us, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised you up with him. So if we're on the board at all, how do we get on the board? Somebody raised us up, washed us off, and cleaned us. We'll get to that in a second. They raised us up, washed us off, cleaned us, and they put us on the board that they clearly marked out the way. Right? That's how we got here. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Raised us up with him. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the ages to come, he may show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourself, that is a gift of God, not a result of works that anyone should boast. All right? So that's how we get on this path to a faithful and holy life, lifted up and raised up by God. And then down in verse 13, after going through this once, what does the Apostle Paul just remember, remind them again of? Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus you who were formerly far off have been brought near by Christ. Actually, I misread that. Been brought near by the blood of Christ. So at awful cost, as we sing in the hymn, at awful cost, we were brought in to this. And so this is the real beginning of the faithful life that we were granted the opportunity to believe. God didn't have to let us believe. He didn't have to send Christ. He didn't have to send the gospel. He didn't have to have people go to all the world and teach this and make disciples. 
but he did and were the recipients of it. As Romans 3.23 reminds us, for we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So why are we trying to live faithful and holy in Christ Jesus? Because we've been given this gift of God to be able to do so. We've begun by grace through faith. We will continue in that way. What does the, the hymn Amazing Grace say? "Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So we have begun this faithful and holy life, not because we were faithful from the start or any such nonsense as that, but because we came faithful in response to the gospel of Christ, preached to the world through his apostles. And now we continue in the same. It's our, we're going to continue in grace through faith to have a faithful life. Paul says in summary, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So this is how we even have faith. He died for me. He gave himself up for me. I now live by faith in him. Uh, After three more chapters of explanation of of faith, not the law, the Apostle Paul would say this in chapter 5 of Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What means something? But faith working through love. And so that's where we stand today. Hopefully with faith working through love. Now faith working through love is going to be a, in the things that God says, is going to be a real good practical definition of being holy, isn't it? Faith working through through love. Or we have one more passage of this type familiar to us, Revelation 2 and 10, where there those undergoing persecution are encouraged to be faithful unto death. Faithful unto death. If they do, they'll receive a crown of life. Uh, Very sort of militaristic language, be faithful unto death. Uh, We have a kind of a... uh, Martial song, a martial hymn called True Hearted, Wholehearted. We, we all know it. We don't sing it just a lot, but we all know it. True Hearted, Wholehearted, Faithful and Loyal. And then in the uh, refrain of that, it has the line, Peel out the watchword, Loyal Forever. In the second verse of that song, True Hearted, Wholehearted, Fullest Allegiance. And in the final hymn, or the final uh, verse of that hymn, over our wills and affections victorious, freely surrendered and wholly thine own. So, our wills and our affections, he has conquered because we surrendered them. He didn't have to wrestle us down and drive it out of it, drive, drive it out of us. We surrendered because he is the Savior. So we surrendered to him and we now live by Faith. So, what does living by faith look like? Well, that's sanctification. Living by faith is sanctification. It is being holy or set apart, uh, being fit for the use of the master. What made in the temple, uh, what made that the sanctuary or the holy place? It was the place set apart for God. What made the things in it holy? The, the holy vessels, uh, the holy altar, the, the, the special table, the special lampstand, uh, all of those special things they had in there. 
gold-plated and finest craftsmanship. But what made them special was not the work of the craftsman, but the dedication of those things to God. Right? They, they were dedicated to God. They were used particularly and specially for his service. And they should have been used for nothing else. And the few times they were used for something else, well, wasn't that a problem? Right? Uh, Daniel 5. When does the handwriting appear on the wall? They're using the holy vessels for a, a, a debaucherous uh, party in the Babylonian kingdom. And so the, these holy things, which now the holy things are to be us, right? That's what saints means. Holy ones, holy people, the sanctified folks. We are now the holy ones, the holy things. And so again, this was not initially the result of our efforts, just as it, uh, salvation wasn't. It was the, the, the gift of God come uh, brought to us. It, it wasn't uh, our refusals of sin. Because sanctification is not just, and we'll see this again, it's not just the refusal of sin. Now, you can sin your way out of sanctification. There's no doubt of that. But you can't refuse enough sins to get sanctified just by that. Right? So it, it, when it comes to sins and sanctifications, it's a one-way street. It goes out. But I can't refuse enough sin to get in. I have to be brought in through Christ, just like I was justified by the gift of his grace. Well, I'm sanctified by the gift of his grace. In 1 Corinthians 6 is this important statement, which deals with sin and sanctification. Also, sin and washing and sin and justification. Gets it all wrapped up in one place. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that was us, right? That was all sinners, all who sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And that's every one of us. The, the unrighteous won't get the kingdom. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such... Were some of you. Oh, well, that was the problem in Corinth. They had such sinners before they came to the church. That's why they were, Corinth always had problems. No. The problem with Corinth wasn't that they were sinners before they came. The problem in Corinth is so much sin after they came, right? That's what the Apostle Paul keeps dealing with. There was so much sin still there amongst them. And so he reminds them that such sin ought not to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so here were sinners, deep in sin, steeped in sin, Ephesians 2, dead in sin. And he washed them, he sanctified them, and he justified them. Actually, that's not the order we normally get these things in. Normally we get, sanct we get justification before sanctification, but in this case... The order is different because the beginning of it is all of a piece. The washing, and of course, when we see washing regarding sin, don't we immediately think of Acts twenty two sixteen? What did the Apostle Paul, what was he told to do uh, when he was baptized, right? Be baptized, washing away your sin. So the washing is clearly in this text forgiveness. Other passages clearly tie that language to baptism. And then you're sanctified. So God took these fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, etc. God made those folks holy. He made them holy. 
Man, if, if you had to do that on your own, what would the process be? If you had to come up with your own washing for this, how strong would the lye soap need to be? Right? I mean, you'd come out of there, you'd have no skin left on you, you'd have no hair left, it would all be burned off, we still got the problem on the inside. But you can't make an acid bath or a lye bath or a soap bath, you can't get enough degreaser and cleaner to cut through this. But the washing of God would cut through it and make you sanctified, make you holy, and make you justified. When you're justified, you're counted as if you've had no sin Ever. You're counted that there is no sin on your account. But we know there's sin. But yeah, but God. But God. Hebrews 13, 12 talks about the power behind all this. Jesus, it says that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. Suffered outside the gate. So Jesus' crucifixion, the blood of Christ, offered to the crucifixion, that is the sanctifying power. In Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might, what? Sanctify her. So he took a bride from that which was unclean and made them clean, right? You think about all the guys who, with good sense, say, man, I'm not marrying that gal. Do you know her past? What is the past of the bride of Christ? It's sin in every one, isn't it? And, but he made her pure. He made her what she ought to be. He cleansed her by the washing of water. There's the washing again. uh, uh, Washing of water with the word that he might present to himself a church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she should be holy and blameless. I can just picture, as it were, the wedding scene of Christ when his bride comes down the aisle and she's dressed in white in the most immaculate uh, white that is possible, so gleaming, so you can't even look at her. And I can just picture the devil shouting from somewhere in the back, but do you know what she used to do? Do you know her? And he starts listing the things. And eventually what happens? Some Just put him out, right? In Revelation 12, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. That, that's the thing about Satan's accusations. Satan's accusations, if, if there's not forgiveness, Satan's right on all his accusations, Satan doesn't have to make stuff up to accuse us. He just has to list what we did. But why is the accuser of our brethren put down? Why is he shown the door? Because these folks have been justified. They've been sanctified. They've been washed. And that doesn't matter anymore. Right? So there's a pure bride at the wedding. Because he washed her. And he sanctified her. He cleansed her and this is the truth of the matter and this is the forgiveness and sanctification that every brother or sister in Christ you've ever known has received and sometimes there's brothers or sisters in Christ and we know their past we know what they did and sometimes people have a hard time getting over that but I know what they were like yeah well you know if they knew you long enough they might know what you were like too One of the most uncomfortable things I have in my life is recalling how I used to be. It's a deeply uncomfortable thing, isn't it? And Satan wants you to dwell on that. But God says, no, I have washed and sanctified you too and the other guy and that other gal. And so our sanctification doesn't depend on how we feel about it. It doesn't depend on how we think about it. It's not self-produced. It's not self-ratified. 
It is ratified and it is produced by God, by his promise and by his teaching, by the calling of God of a sinful humanity to himself. 1 Peter 1 and 2, by the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with his blood. To you, brethren, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Grace and peace to the utmost, in the fullest. Why? Because of the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, our obedience to Christ, and our being sprinkled with his blood. That's where sanctification begins. And then from there, we are now in a fit state to pursue it. And so it is an objective reality promised in the scriptures is sanctification. This initial sanctification, it's where we began. It's when we came to Christ. It's relational. It's in him. And the most powerful passages in all the New Testament are that 70 or 80 or so passage of in him or in Christ. Look and read all the indicative passages, the the indications of what are, the statements of fact of what is in Christ. And if we're in Christ, what is ours? So it's initial, it's it's relational, it's positional, it's connected to him. So that's how we initially got sanctified. Even those adulterers and effeminate guys and those covetous folks and those drunkards and swindlers, all those ones in Corinth long ago and all the ones of similar sin today who have come, they now are made holy. But now it's time to pursue more of the will of God. Now it is time as Christians to grow, to change, to be conformed to Christ. It was a life completely out of confirmation with Christ, nothing like Christ, that got us where we were. It is from that that he lifted us and brought us and forgived us and washed away our sins. And I need to know and you need to know we can't live that way anymore. I think everybody pretty well understands we can't live that way anymore. One of the problems that comes with that is just realizing how deep that goes. Because every sinner will know at salvation, there's some things I can't do. The Christ who died for me wouldn't want me to live that way. But as we study the entirety of Scripture and see what the true character of Christ was, we find just how many things there are. And we might yet find more there was, there's, there's more treasure of the scripture and there's more indication of who and what Christ is. There's more of the mind of Christ for us to, be, to, for us to find and to try to develop in ourselves. And in this we must make our progress. We must pursue sanctification. That first sanctification, the initial sanctification, there was no pursuit of it. There was just faith and grace and we received it in the gospel and it was given to us. But now, having received that, that God would accept us, he'll hear our prayers, he, he, he seeks and desires our worship, he now wants us to make progress in this, to be conformed now more to him. Romans eight twenty nine. those he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he'd be the firstborn among the brethren. We are to be conformed to the image of the Son. 
Isn't that so much the problem, say, at the church at Corinth, where there's all those problems in the church? What problem did they not have in Corinth? They had lack of understanding, they had faction, they had lawsuits among the brethren. They, it, it appears, had people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I mean, we may not have got everything right today, but, you know, I think we can all pass the breathalyzer on the way out, right? But they, they had other people doing, uh, they were misusing spiritual gifts, they were uh, people uh, in adultery, there were people who were in doctrinal error, Yet they were still the church in Corinth. Why? Well, they'd had that initial sanctification and justification that came from God by faith. But how many of them were really conformed to the image of his son? Well, they had a lot of work to do. There's a lot of pursuit down that path to go. And so that's where we stand as well. We stand on the path where we are trying now to pursue, pursue the things of righteousness. Going back again to that 1 Corinthians 6 you were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, etc. You were that. But the thing is, you can't be that now. And that really was a problem in Corinth because don't we have people who are committing adultery? Don't we have people that were worshiping idols? You can't keep doing that because you've been called into something else. You now need to live like your sanctified. And lest I pick too much on the Corinthians, it's not just them. In 1 Thessalonians, there's this, 1 Thessalonians 4. We normally think about the nice Thessalonians, the, the people who had a little confusion there about the uh, resurrection because some people uh, didn't uh, know any better uh, yet and were mistaught, but uh, they're suffering persecution. And we normally have a pretty good, uh, you know, we have a good feeling about the Thessalonian brethren, but there's this instruction to them. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So God wants you to be sanctified and grow ever more conformed to the Son, ever more holy. This is the will of God, your sanctification. In this case, he says, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. Talk about a common problem of man, right? Uh, said in the Bible class this morning, quoting Solomon, there's nothing new under the sun. I read my newspaper. Okay, I don't read the newspaper. I read my Twitter. <laughs> I read my, my other social media feeds. And man, does it look like there's a whole new class of sin under the sun? It's like, I never saw, whoever saw that? And then somebody comes up with a worse perversion, a worse version of it than there was yesterday. I go, what? What's Solomon said? Nothing new under the sun. Well, here are, here are Thessalonian brethren. God's will for them and God's will for us. Abstain from sexual immorality. Let each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. Just as I told you before and I've solemnly warned you, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. When we read about those Corinthian brothers who were involved in fornication, I always picture them going down to locals' idols' temple where that stuff was readily available and commonly done. Here to the Thessalonian brethren, though, he said in this, see that no one defraud his brother. Who, who are they fornicating with if it's defrauding a brother? Is it a man's sister or daughter or wife in the congregation? Is, is that who's sleeping with each other in this text? Man, that makes me think a little bit less of the Thessalonians. Yeah, and then you read about some of the things happened among some of our brethren from time to time. 
have you known some of these things? Among people? I never would have thought. Well, I'm glad you wouldn't have. But evidently they thought it. No, sin is with us. Sin is with us. And we need to pursue sanctification. And there is a solemn warning about this. And the warning, you talk, again, we mentioned barbs that go with instructions. The Lord is the avenger of such things. That sounds pretty serious. When the Lord comes as the avenger, who wants to fight him? I volunteer anyone else but me. I know. You're not going to stand. And so for the Thessalonian brethren, look, this is God's will. So here's the thing, and this is the grace of God all the way through. Here's the thing that if it's not repented of, Christ will come as an avenger of it. And Paul deals with it with a rational and reasonable approach appealing to their morality and their faithfulness, right? Notice, again, how serious it is. There's a defrauding of a brother, an avenger, making Christ an avenger. And this is not the purpose for which God called us. But I don't picture Paul in histrionics here over it. But he is solemnly rebuking and warning. So that's what we need to do. We need to give solemn warning. And we need to help encourage one another. And we need to very closely look to ourselves. Again, that Romans 8.29, he predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. And that is resisting such sins as these, this worldliness of which we talked in Bible class, and all kinds of carnality. But it's not just the refusing of sin. It can't be just the refusing of sin. Because is that what Christ came and did when he lived his perfect life on earth? He came and just refused all sin. No. How did Peter summarize his life's work in Acts 10.38? He came and did good. He went about doing good. There's a goodness that we need to have and pursue. Colossians 3. And each one of these words, of which we're fixing to read in this long list, each one of these words could be their own lesson. But Colossians 3.12, beginning to verse 15. And so, as those who've been chosen of God, holy, there's our word, and beloved, put on, and here's the list of things to do in sanctification and holiness. It's not just the refusal of sin. It is certainly the refusal of sin. But it's not just the refusal of sin. It is put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, into which you were called into one body, and be thankful. So this sort of wraps up all the themes we've been talking about this morning. The holiness, the togetherness in the church, the call of God and the grace of God to call us and put us where we're at. And what is the list of things here to do? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, unity, peace, and thankfulness. Those are as much a part of sanctification as abstaining from any list of sins you can find in the scripture. Abstaining from every list of sin in the scripture is part of sanctification. But so is the putting on of these qualities to be conformed to the image of his son. 
None of this is accidental. In this world, every bit of this is walking uphill. Right? So again, the Hebrews 12 passage, it is a pursuit of sanctification. But again, the great barb in it, without which no one will see the Lord. But he's called us to this. He's empowered us to this. This is the very purpose of the calling of God for us. What do we see in Ephesians 2 in the first we read? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. This is what he's prepared us for. This is what he equips us for. This is what he has called us to do. We close then with Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I therefore urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's all by God's grace and mercy we do all of this. By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so you may prove what the will of God is, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so we have been sanctified. We've been given that initial sanctification, that relational sanctification of being in Christ. We've also been charged now with growing in it and pursuing it and living it more and more like Him each day. So for us, there's nothing more basic to our Christian life. We needed to talk about Christ and coming to Him and our faith in Him, the response of faith. But now that we're here, There's nothing more basic than being faithful and being holy. It's the very essence of what we're called to do in Him. With that, we close. We ask you, if you need the invitation today, you need to come confessing sin to return to Him, or you need to come confessing Him so as to be baptized and added to Him and and begin this. uh, Accept His grace to come from sin, from that deadness and from that vanity. And come to life with the hope of eternal life. We need to come to the invitations offered as we stand and as we sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.